So, Will. Yes? In this week's movie, our protagonist and her cousin like to play a game where they name a time and they pick their favorite song from that time. So I want to ask, in one of our greatest years of music, 2010, what is your favorite song? Okay, now, as you know, Mark, I don't listen to a ton of music and do not have cool taste. Yes. Uh, my number one artist on Spotify last year was Pete Seeger. Yes, this we know. Um, in 2010, probably the thing I was listening to most was the soundtrack to the Broadway musical Next to Normal. I mean, <laughs> that's a, it's a good album. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> it really speaks to 2010, but I looked it up and apparently that album came out in 2009. Mm. So was your number one song My Psychopharmacologist Did Me? I don't know. I went deep on Next to Normal. I found, like, recordings of, like, earlier versions of the show that did not make it into the final one. And I had those on my iPad as well. I was all in on that. Um, so because that did not qualify and because this was post Straight Outta Linwood, the last Weird Al album that I bought, <laughs> I just went to Wikipedia and I pulled up the Billboard uh, year-end Hot 100 chart. I'm looking at it. A lot of hits. I don't know. Teenage Dream is really good. Let's say Teenage Dream. That song rocks. That's number one for that year, isn't it? It's number 17. It's number 17? Oh, the album. Number one, also good, but I didn't realize it at the time, TikTok. Yes. Uh, my number one is another Kesha song. I just need to bring you back to this time, because if you look up the Billboard 100 from that era, you will understand... But that is the year that my sister and I were road tripping, just the two of us, to do college tours. Excellent. And this is that transition period where you had to listen to the radio. It's like we had some connection between iPod and the radio, but we were in a rental car. No, see, the sweet thing was you had to have an FM transmitter where you plugged it into the cigarette lighter in the car. Cars don't really have cigarette lighters anymore. But you'd plug this thing into a cigarette lighter and choose a radio frequency that was not being used wherever you were. And so then this doohickey basically would broadcast your iPod on an unused radio frequency so your car radio could pick it up. So we had the audio cassette tape with an aux cord on it version. Oh, of course. But yeah, so we had to listen to the radio and there was one song in particular. Well, there were like three songs that were playing constantly. California Girls, Bulletproof by LaRue, and my number one, Your Love is My Drug by Kesha. Oh, agreed. And the amount of times we heard them, it was like, at the beginning, we were so into it. Then we were like, okay, this has been a bit too overplayed because we've listened to it three times in our one hour drive on the radio. And then by the end of the summer, it was back up to Your Love is My Drug would come on for the fourth time in an hour and we would crank the radio station (laughs) and just belt it me and my sister so that is such a summer memory because it also combines in the horror of college tours for not even your college experience that sounds like the time my sisters and i went to southern france over spring break and the radio station there had a very limited playlist <laughs> and of course there's other stuff too where like by law a certain percentage of the music has to be french So we were hearing the same couple of songs over and over again. And (laughs) it was like beginning of the week. All right, this is interesting. Middle of the week. Why are we still hearing this? End of the week, like, this is the French anthem. Isn't it 
wild that other countries have to have laws that say you can't only play American media. Because yeah, that's I mean, essentially it. what it is. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I guess British, too, because Adele. Sure. Also, one thing I didn't really realize until later is that college tours aren't only a summer thing to a lot of people. Yeah. But I was only in the U.S. once a year, so it had to be over the summer. But some people did it over spring break. Yeah, wow. that, that's really common. Um, a lot of... This is now just getting into, like, my knowledge of high school from work. Like, a lot of seniors do it oh, around yes. Columbus Day because that Wednesday, then, is the PSAT, the Wednesday after Columbus Day. So you just skip school on Tuesday, and you've got, like, you leave Friday, you got Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to go around places. Wow. I haven't thought about the concept of the PSAT <laughs> in a very long time. See, Mark, what you have to understand is that it doesn't matter, but it could matter, but it mostly doesn't matter. It almost certainly doesn't matter. The could is just for a National Merit Scholarship. Oh, right. That's what makes it the PSAT NMSQT. Ah. Ugh. Um, <laughs> did you do, it was, I think, the Duke Talent Identification Program, by any chance? Where you took the SAT or ACT as a seventh grader? No, I didn't do this. Okay. Yeah, that's a weird thing that happened at my school, where I signed up and took the ACT as a seventh grader and got recognized. I'm familiar with the concept. I have never myself understood it. I don't get it either. It was just to give, I guess, smart kids something to feel good about themselves when they were doing terribly in gym class. (laughs) (laughs) At least that's what happened for me. Don't get me wrong, I was not getting, like, a 36. I didn't think you were, but I'm yeah. glad that you clarified. I still felt good, about my, I, I felt good about my score, but it was not a good one. Well, you were also 12. Yeah, I didn't do the SAT because I didn't want to write an essay. Oh. In that, like, brief however long where they required it. I mean, it, it was, like, 10 years, nearly. Yeah. My thing with that was I was always just like, no matter what, I'm just going to write about Fahrenheit 451. Because I knew that book backwards and forwards. I was reading it like once a year at that point. And I was like, no matter what, I can hook something on, even if it means misinterpreting the book, which I did once or twice on standardized tests. <laughs> well, I mean, that's probably not good. But I guess as long as you have a consistent argument. Yeah, I always did fine. I wrote mine about hippies because I had watched a three-hour History Channel documentary about the hippies the night before <laughs> the SAT. That is how most of those are based. Yep. History Channel used to have such good stuff. I also watched a series a lot about how illegal drugs became illegal, which kind of radicalized me in some ways because the reason pot is illegal because hemp was too easy to grow and the paper manufacturers shut it down. That's fascinating. That's like a big driver is because lumber mills were worried about losing business to hemp plants. I I know almost nothing about hemp, but I did once briefly speak to someone who felt very strongly about it. When I was working for, uh, working is a generous word, but for the Obama re-elect campaign in 2012, and I just remember I was phone banking into, like, southern, southern Virginia, like, right on the border with North Carolina, like, Danville. And I got this guy who I think lived across the border in North Carolina, because he kept talking about Kay Hagan. And he just, like, really was not going to let me move on to anything until, like, courtesy of me sitting in a dorm room at Georgetown... Barack Obama committed to supporting, like, hemp subsidies. Um, the senator I interned for was, like, the leading proponent of legalizing hemp products. 
Well, th this guy would have loved it because he was he was explaining to me all the reasons why hemp is good for growth. And I was like, dude, I, I believe you. I just need to know if you have a plan to vote. Yeah, I mean, it is actually a sustainable alternative to many things. There's a reason it should be legal. And it's also hilarious that monopolies are the reason for pot being illegal to smoke. Anyway, we are... So far from where we started, <laughs> I think it is time to start the episode. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, I'm gay, and I couldn't even come up with a remote segue from that topic. Well, I'm Will, and I'm a ginger, and this, of course, is an investigative podcast, not looking into the legality of hemp or into music in 2010. We're looking into whether Hollywood romance actually makes any sense. And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at Eugene Ash's 2020 mid-century black romance, Sylvie's Love, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamuga. Now, this is a capital A, capital M, a movie. Heck yeah! This is very much a movie. Which I love about it. It's just like, just... It's moviness oozes from it. <laughs> I know. It is just such a movie. I loved it. I mean, obviously, all the performances are great. Tessa Thompson, always a winner. Never bad. Uh, former NFL player Namdi was doing incredible work, considering the only other acting I'd seen him do was a brief cameo on The Kroll Show in one of the publicity sketches. Namdi, go ahead. Liz? I'm so excited to be getting married to you today. Thank you. You seem like a really, really cool chick. And uh, I just want everyone here to know that you just got nomdied. <laughs> what? There's a camera here, camera there, camera here. You just got nomdied. What? Are you saying what or why? What? It, it doesn't matter. Look, the what is, this is my prank show. And the why is because you're a beast. I don't know what just happened. Good job. Okay. Good Okay, you sent me that, and it's pretty great. It's so good. I mean, publicity is definitely the most lasting contribution of The Kroll Show to my life. It made me regret that he never appeared on The League, because so many of the football player performances on that show are not good. I mean, I think he would have been a very strong addition to The League. But, I mean, he was turning in a great performance. I loved Mona, her cousin. Oh, she's a blast. It's just an all-around good movie. It's just the kind of thing, like, it honestly kind of snuck up on me. Like, I felt like I spent most of it watching being like, this is like a nice, small-scale movie that is just, like, well-made and well-acted, and I'm just kind of enjoying watching it. And it wasn't until it was in, like, the last 20 minutes that I was, like, that I realized how fully invested I was in everything that was going on. I had the realization of just, like, no, it's just like quietly working and building up each piece supported by really great performances to the point where it's not a showy movie, but it is just like really quietly effective and really lovely. I mean, it's also beautiful. Yes. I love the set design and everything about it. I do have to say, Lance Reddick, who plays Sylvie's dad is the voice actor for a character in the video game Horizon Zero Dawn. And this is the first time that I'd seen him in something since playing that. And they just, ca they captured him so perfectly. It was almost weird seeing him as a real human again. <laughs> because the like, 
they did such a good job recreating his physical look as well as using him as a voice actor in the video game. I, I never know how to feel about that. It's always like kind of weird. I mean, I honestly feel kind of weird whenever I like recognize a famous person's voice in a video game, which is probably just like a me thing. But then when they also look like them, it's, it's very strange to me. I know. I But have you heard his voice? I, it's great. Uh, obviously, he was a great addition to the voice cast. I am honestly sorry that it took me so long to watch this movie because I was aware of it when it came out in December of 2020. And I just kind of filed it away on like my long list of 2020 stuff and never circled back to it. Eventually, I just put it on our list of stuff to eventually cover because I figured I'd get to it that way. I hadn't heard of it at all until I looked at the schedule when we were trying to decide what to do for this batch. And I saw the name Sylvie's Love and I assumed it was like a 70s black romance like claudine and i think it may we i kind of was checking right after claudine i think that was around the time that we updated but it was still i just i was so surprised to find out it came out in 2020 because i'd heard nothing about it yeah i mean part of that is like 2020 was a mess of film releases but i also think that it was done dirty by amazon prime uh, who is who released it yeah, uh, I don't think they had a lot of faith in this movie because they no. did not advertise it on the main screen ever. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, so it premiered at Sundance in January 2020, which was like the last movie thing that happened. And Amazon acquired it there. And yeah, like you said, like Amazon is capable of putting a lot of muscle behind a movie. If you go on Prime Video these days, you cannot miss the fact that Being the Ricardos exists to the point that there will be five different boxes that you can scroll between all of which are just a different character poster that brings you to being the Ricardos. Like, when they want to put their muscle behind something, they can do it. Yeah, I mean, I watched Wheel of Time. Right. And I don't know that I knew Sylvie's Love was coming out until I read a review of it in IndieWire, and I don't feel like I saw an ad for it until they were campaigning it for the Emmys. Because the other weird thing about this, where, as far as I'm concerned, Amazon kind of did it dirty, is the that... Emmys? Amazon treated this as a TV movie. Why? Because they... Here's the thing, like, in a vacuum, an Amazon movie that just debuts on Prime Video and that's it would be submitted as a TV movie. The same way that, okay. like, a movie that just premieres on Netflix or whatever would be considered for the Emmys and not for the Oscars. The thing is, in 2020, all you had to do was prove that at some point you had the intention of putting it in a theater. <laughs> like, the bar for qualifying as a movie was so extraordinarily low that all you had to do was, like, in July, say, like, we're planning on putting this in one theater in New York and one theater in Los Angeles in December. And then when December rolls around and there are no vaccines, you could be like, I guess not, but we qualify for the Oscars now. And so then instead, they just dump it on Prime Video with no fanfare on December 23rd, which means you're between Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix, which is, you know, underseen but getting more attention than this. And then two days later, Soul and Wonder Woman 84 hit streaming. Yeah. It didn't really stand a chance in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which is a shame because it's so good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I still don't know very much about it. Like, what the reactions were or anything. I mean, there, there's not a ton about it because it got such a small rollout. And it, it just it just wasn't seen by that many people. The people who did see it generally liked it. Like, it was pretty well reviewed in its you know, eventual release in December 2020. It was generally well-received at Sundance, although it premiered pretty late in the festival. So it wasn't part of that, like, 
initial surge of premieres when everyone is in Park City watching stuff and filing reviews. It actually did manage to score some, like, TV nominations. Um, Eugene Ash won an NAACP Image Award for directing it. They got an Emmy nomination. Actually, well, we're going to get to that. So, yeah, NAACP Image Awards, uh, Eugene Ash wins for directing. He's nominated for writing, and it was nominated for Best TV Movie Slash Miniseries, TV Actor for Nambi Asamuga, and Actress for Tessa Thompson. In almost every one of those categories, they lost to Self Made, a Netflix miniseries with Octavia Spencer as Madam C.J. Walker that I had never heard of. I had heard of it. I have not seen it. And I don't know of anyone who has seen it. Well, the NAACP Image Awards loved it. They got a Critics' Choice nomination for Best TV Movie and lost to a little thing called Hamilton. <laughs> and Tessa Thompson got a Critics' Choice nomination for Actress in a TV Movie or Miniseries and lost to Anya Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit when she was on her steamroller run. It's just, this movie is such a movie that it's hard to conceptualize it as a TV movie. I am going to tell you about a thing this did not belong in a category with, okay? At the yeah. Emmys, Sylvie's Love, the wonderful, lovely, heartfelt, romantic movie that premiered at Sundance, was nominated for Outstanding TV Movie. Just, Mark, just name for me a TV thing from 2020. You're not going to guess what this is, but actually I know you've seen it. From 2020, a TV thing. Just name it anything, just for the sheer fun of it. I mean... The game changer for me was the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Okay, um, Sylvie's Love lost the <laughs> Emmy to Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Oh my god, I have seen that. What a shame. That movie, I appreciated it for what it is, but it is in no way better than this. It's just, it is bizarre for those two things to exist in the same zone. I just don't understand the choice of who to give the prize to, either. I did not see Christmas on the Square. I was happy for the people that it made happy. There was nothing new about it besides Dolly Parton was in it. It added nothing else to the genre, and I appreciated that. Wait, was it like a full-on... I always assumed it was like a concert thing. No, it was a full-on movie. Okay. It's a Netflix Christmas movie. But instead of, you know, a knight traveling through time, it has Dolly Parton as a guardian angel teaching Christine Baranski to stop being mean. Excuse me? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty fun. <laughs> Is it just, like, a Christmas carol-y thing? Like, does she have a love story? Uh, Christine Baranski does. Dolly Parton is literally an angel. So right. Now. Yeah, she's um, like Jacob Marley? She owns a town. A weird thing that happens in media where people are like, I own this entire town. And she's selling it to a mall so that the mall can cut, like, raise this entire town. Where, Where is this mall coming from in 2020? I don't Who's know. Who's going big on malls? I don't know. But yeah, so that's that movie. It is not more outstanding than Sylvie's Love. My favorite, like, local news source from where I grew up will occasionally just post a list of, here are the stores that are still in the mall, and it's always hilarious because they're always weird. Ugh. Is it Lake Forest Mall in particular? It is Lake Forest Mall. Oh my god. Is the theater that's in the mall still open, do you know? The one where you can hear the train that drives around during shows sometimes? I have no idea. I imagine not, I mean. I will figure this out later. But yeah, Sylvie's Love. Lovely movie. Apparently in development for a long time. It was originally announced in 2014 uh, with Lawrence Tate producing and starring in it. And then there was 
no further announcement for five years. And then in 2019, it seems like it came together pretty quickly. Tessa Thompson and Nandi Asamuga were announced. A whole raft of producers, including both of them. And then the next year it was at Sundance. That's pretty crazy that it turned around that fast. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those kinds of things where plugging away at something and then very quickly the the financing comes together, the stars come together, and you're good to go. Yeah. I really liked that this movie tells a very 60s, early 70s women's lib story. Yeah. But about a black woman, which I realized, like, I had not seen before, where she's reading the feminine mystique. Like, that little touch, I was like, I don't think much has addressed the fact that black women also probably read the feminine mystique. Yeah, in the past, this would have been, like, a Mary Tyler Moore character, right? Right. She's, like, pushing back against some of the expectations of her. I mean, the fact that she wants to go into TV is you know something that lines up with the Mary Tyler Moore show. But all of this, like, uh, marriage dynamics and women in the workplace and all of that, you're right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point that had not really occurred to me. I just loved that she was so into TV. I mean, that I feel like that's a thing that we don't get in movies very much, is somebody who's just like, TV is great because movies are movies and movies believe they're better than TV. I Yeah, I did really think about that. And I did feel weird about it, but I never really put it together that you just don't see a lot of love for TV in movies. Right, you sometimes have people who work in, like, TV news, but then their passion is for the news, it's not for television. And, like, here, Sylvie loves live TV, and, like, one of the moments in this movie we see her most fulfilled is when she is producing a television cooking show. It's funny that she really does have Mary Tyler Moore's job, because Mary Tyler Moore was the assistant producer, but on a news show. And they did have a cooking show with essentially the same character, Sue Ann Nivens, played by the great Betty White, who on screen plays the very similar chef part to, um, what's her name? Lucy Wolper, played by Reno 911's Wendy McClendon Covey, where she's like sweet on screen, but off screen, Sue Ann Nivens is like a man eater. So if we keep building this out, then Mona is Rhoda, right? Yeah, Mona would be her Rhoda. I mean, this movie isn't not inspired by Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> there is something there. So then her dad is Lou. No, I mean, Lou would be her boss, the producer, whose name is... I cannot remember. That's Kate Spencer, right? Ryan Michelle Bathe character? Yes, yes. Kate Spencer. I it, it stuck with me. It's a good, like, kind of punch of the name. Yeah. It's like a comic book name. So that would be her Lou. But yeah, it's interesting. She does kind of follow that route, but just with a divorce and a kid that Mary Tyler Moore does not have. I'm just staring at the cast list on Wikipedia now, Mark, and I'm going to shift gears again. So the white like music agent, Sid Schur, is played by John Magaro, who was the lead of the great, great film First Cow. Mark, have you ever seen the Walmart commercial that he did? I have not. Okay. In, like, 2010, you know, the year of great music, John Magaro did a singing Christmas Walmart commercial about getting all this stuff for a Christmas party, and it features him and his love interest in the commercial is Kristen Milioti. What? It's truly bizarre to watch now knowing both of them. It, it's a pretty good ad. He's good in it. Oh, it's a Walmart slash Coke commercial. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to send this to you. 
okay. Do you want me to watch it while we're recording or save uh, it yeah, for later? Yeah, please watch this because it's now playing in my headphones. So, okay, let me click the link. The holidays are here again, so I'm inviting all my friends, the people who are close to me. They're my extended family. You've got my mom, my sis, my brother, my surprisingly cool stepmother, and the two kids that she had before she ever met my dad. <laughs> Next, you've got my aunts and cousins. They showed up with several dozen friends of theirs. It's fine with me. I've got enough for all. Here in the hall, you've got my office mates, my best friend, and his online He's just carrying a lot of cokes. <laughs> Keeps handing how, how, is he carrying a cooler? Oh, he's got a bag. And the first girl that I ever kissed. You're beautiful. I love you. Oh, yes. Because one truth I have found. And it's never let me down. When you stock up on joy, there's enough Star of Palm Springs. Enough to go round. It's it's a pretty good ad. It's a pretty good commercial, but I mean, Coke is well known for their good commercial. <laughs> I just that popped into my head while I was watching the movie, and I thought you needed to see it. <sighs> their other manager, the Countess, is played by Jemima Kirk, who is just really good in the most recent season of Sex Education on Netflix. She's great in this movie. She's one of those characters where you're like, oh, she's got a whole other movie going. Yes, I would watch her movie that happens at the same time as this. And the whole time you're like, there's like a 40% chance she's from Lovecraft Country. Yes, also true. Her character is very interesting. This movie has so many recognizable faces. I mean, it's the thing that we talk about every time we do one of these like sweeping black romances or comedies, where... Frankly, there are so few good roles for black actors that when you have a movie with a lot of roles for black actors, like everybody down to like the third tier person, you know, is a heavy hitter. Like they're going to be able to do great stuff because they ought to be like anchoring their own like crappy rom-coms. Right. I think that it's also just funny to me that they did cast Wendy McClendon Covey because she was so perfect for that role. Oh, yeah, she's great. But I didn't recognize her at first, and then as soon as it hit me that she was the actress from Reno 911 and Bridesmaids, I I gasped. I was like, oh my god, it's her! So I feel like we've kind of talked through the cast. Like I said, there's not a ton to say because Amazon really screwed yeah. this movie. So should we talk about the romance of Sylvie's love? The titular love? The titular... Oh my god, this movie made for us, because if there's one thing we love... It's love! It's love. And... To discuss the love, every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide the conversation. Will, what is point numero uno? Okay, so it's not the very beginning because this movie starts in media res and then jumps back. So really, our romance starts in 1957 when Robert Nandi Asamuga goes to a record store where he meets Sylvie, whose name I consistently forgot when writing in my notes. I kept being like, what's this character's name? Nobody's saying it that much. And then I'd look up at the top of my page where I'd written Sylvie's Love and be like, oh, right. Yeah, they didn't really need to say it that much because they probably expected you to remember it. Well, that's on them for assuming that I would pay that much <laughs> attention. That will be $3. Um, how much is a discount if you work here? We're not hiring. Well, this sign says you are. <laughs> See... 
My fiance is over in Korea, and my mother won't allow television inside the house, so I have to come here to Daddy's store every day to watch my shows until Lacey comes home and we get married, and I can finally have a TV of my own. Oh. <laughs> but my mother, Eunice Johnson of the Eunice Johnson School of, of Etiquette and Manners. Uh huh. Yeah. She has some of the finest young ladies from the best families in Harlem attend her school, so mm -hmm. she has a certain image to uphold and therefore doesn't want people to think that I'm here because Daddy can't afford to hire help. So that's why we put the sign in the window, even though we don't need anyone. So, anyway, we've got Robert. He is a saxophone player from Detroit. The other thing that struck me about this movie is how weirdly similar it is, not just to the Mary Tyler Moore show, but to New York, New York. Oh, yeah. Where they are both these years-long mid-century romances. I mean, the guy is a saxophonist in both. But more that, like, it is this big dramatic romance about these two people who are both trying to rise up in their professional lives and also trying to make that line up with their romantic desires in New York in this particular period. Like, I think there's a lot of similarity to the structure, but I like New York, New York, I think a little better than you did. But what I appreciate about Sylvie's Love is that where New York, New York always goes for, like, the biggest emotion, this one lets so much go unsaid. And also just, like, moves through plot with the brutal efficiency of a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yes, this a lot happens in this movie. And it's two hours long, and you still feel like a lot happens. In part because this is a movie that has a lot of faith in its audience. Like, you know, there'll be a conversation where Sylvie, like, kind of implies that she wants to break up with her husband. And the next time you see her, like, she is living alone. We don't need three scenes to work through their separation and, like, talking to the kid and talking to other people. Like, it's just like, boom, we got it. All right, move on. I also like how this movie doesn't feel the need to explain, especially when she calls Mona and she's in Georgia and she mentions core and the movie isn't like taking a time to be, here is exactly what I'm doing and what this organization is. It kind of trusts that you know what this is and what it references. Or at the very least, you'll figure out what you need to know. Right. Or you can yeah. Google it later. This movie has a lot of faith in its audience's intelligence. I did appreciate that. <laughs> and boy, does it make it efficient. Is really the best way of describing covers it. a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, it covers how many years total? Well, there's a five-year time jump. Yeah. And that is one thing where it moves through stories so quickly that it is sometimes a little hard to tell how much time is passing. Right. But the first segment takes basically the course of a summer. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the second part definitely... After the five years, that takes place over the course of a much longer stretch of time. I think it's at least, like, two years. I mean, she goes from assistant producer to producer by the end of the movie, so it has to be long enough for her to <laughs> demonstrate her worth in the role. Get some experience besides taking the food home. So, anyway, our first point, Robert is a saxophone player in from Detroit. His band, or rather the band that he is in, is contracted to play at a club in New York for the summer. And one day he walks into the record store that's owned by Sylvie's dad. And that's their, their first meeting. I absolutely love the two TVs stacked on top of each other. <laughs> okay, I was also about to talk about this because there's this runner about how Sylvie's dad, anything that's thrown away on the street, he's going to take it and figure out how to make it work. And he once brought home a TV with no sound. So he went out and found a TV with no picture and synced them up so that you get the sound out of one TV and the picture on the other. 
Yeah, they're just stacked on top of each other. It's so funny. It's like this enormous entertainment unit to deliver, like, (laughs) over the airwaves television. Uh, So he walks in, and there's a help-wanted sign in the window. So he, a little flirtily... I love this move. ...asks for the job, and she basically is just like, no, we're not actually hiring. Wait, what he does is goes up, puts a record on the counter... And says how much, and then he says how much oh with God, the employee discount, that. and puts the sign on the counter too. That was such a ballsy move. I love it. But yeah, so she explains that they're not actually hiring, and that the sign is, but it's like designed to make them look busier, so that more people are interested in shopping there. And also because her mom is like all concerned. Her mom is an etiquette teacher who's very concerned with appearance of status, and was worried that having Sylvie working there would make it look like they needed help but could not afford to pay someone to work there. Oh, right. Yeah, her mom is very interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna say, bad lady. Yeah, she's not a very good person. (laughs) But we also learned that Sylvie is engaged, her fiancé's in Korea, presumably in the army, but she's working at the record store in part because that's where the TV is, so she can just sit there and watch I Love Lucy and occasionally ring up some records. But then her dad comes upstairs and sees that he's interested and hires him on the spot. Yeah, good stuff. And so they, you know, point number one continues as they they continue working together. At one point, they get shut down and they get locked in the basement together. And they're just like Yeah, so you get classic romantic movie bonding. Yeah, it's great. You know, they're they're laughing about her fiancé's music taste. The thing is, to get out, he like takes one of her hairpins and they go up. And it is this like very aggressively intimate lean where he like gets in really close to her face. He's got his hand around the back of her head and he just pulls out her hairpin and goes to pick the lock. It was He's like going for it. It was sensual. We are told in a conversation between Sylvie and her cousin Mona, who uh, we've mentioned before, she's played by Asia Naomi King, that it's pretty heavily implied the only reason she's engaged is because her mom caught the two of them messing around. And also, this is exactly the type of man that her mom would want her to marry. He's like a rich doctor. And a nice, handsome man. Or the son of a rich doctor. So he's from a good family. So they're continuing to flirt, but it's weird because she is engaged, but it's not clear how much she's committed to that engagement. One night, she comes to see him play at the club, and they have a nice, like, sensual dance... She's getting annoyed when another woman is like, hey, you coming out to the bar with us after the show? I love his comeback to <laughs> Sylvie when she gets jealous. Or he's like, oh, no, she's not my date. She's a co-worker, just like you're a co-worker. Only she's not engaged to anybody. Good lied. Uh, and then they, he walks her home. And like they get to the sidewalk outside her place. And she just very directly holds out her hand to shake. But then he says, isn't it customary for there to be a kiss at the end of a date? This is a great scene. She's going on like, yeah, it would be if there were a date, and then talks herself into it, where she's like, well, I guess it was kind of date-like, which is literally a conversation that I have had when I and someone retroactively decided, like, you know what, we have been on a date, I guess we're dating. So she then walks herself to, oh, it would be rude not to kiss him, and then they just, like, fully make out. They have, like... The most romantic, like, she's, like, kissing on the doorstep. And it's like, oh, this is this is not a polite kiss. No, it is not a polite peck on the cheek. But then she kind of breaks it off and is like, oh, no, I'm engaged. Well, also, uh, her mom, like, tells her, don't be messing around. Yeah. 
because her mom saw them. But that doesn't really stick. <laughs> no, it doesn't stick because, like, she turns him down the next day when he's trying to take her out. And then she's like, I'm, no, I'm going to go out with my cousin instead. But Mona had hooked up with uh, the Duke from Bridgerton, who's also in the band. And so Mona's like, oh, I know about this party that we can go to. And it's the same party. So she and Robert are at this party again. And this really sort of is the beginning of our point number two, which is when they start dating. Because they're having a weird, awkward time. She eventually leaves. He chases her out. And they have this really nice sort of adult conversation about feeling ordinary and sort of struggling with whether that's a good thing or not, or fe whether feeling ordinary or feeling ordinary things is a good thing. And then they do a great movie thing, which is dancing together in the street. Yeah, with no real music playing. Yep, love that. Only in the movies. And it's from there, they're dating. Very sweet. Yes. And they're just kind of like spending the summer dating each other. When a girl is kissed by a guy, she'd like to think that she's the only girl that guy's been kissing. So you carrying on with what's-her-face doesn't make me feel very special. Well, the only reason I was carrying on with her in the first place is because of you telling me this was all a big mistake. That doesn't make me feel very special either. Matter of fact, it made me feel pretty ordinary. Well, you're not. Ordinary to me. In fact... I think you're one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. There's some really good montage work of them, like, biking around in parks, going on picnics, watching TV together. They go up on the beach, which is actually the roof of the building, and they have sex on the roof. Yes, and then he gets a job offer in Paris. Yeah, so their band is getting recruited to go play in Paris, but also, at one point, Sylvie's mom catches her coming home from a date. And the next day, the dad calls Robert and lets him go. Oh, yeah. Sylvie's mom is a menace. Yeah, no good. And I seem to have blocked out all of the parts with her in it. <laughs> I mean, she really disappears from the movie. Yeah, I think this is kind of her last moment. Um, that night, Robert goes and he plays saxophone in the street for her to get her to come out. And he's like, come with me to Paris. And she doesn't, even though... She has thrown up into a toilet, and this is a movie. So, she is pregnant. I was really hoping it wasn't that obvious, but it was. Uh, she threw up in a toilet. Her cousin asked, what was the last time you got your period? And then it's like, oh, you have to, you have to tell him. But she does not. She, like, goes to meet him where he's about to leave. He was waiting for her, and she's like, actually, I am not going. Bye-bye. And then, there's a time jump. Oh, yeah. I did want to point out, I recognized her mom, and I didn't know why, and then I realized, I think part of it was Godfriended me. She was on Godfriended me. Oh, excellent. Also on Veronica Mars, which is probably the main thing, but there's a good chance that I saw her and was like, where do I know her from? And it was because we watched the full first season of God Friended Me as it aired. Wait, was she the, like, woman that the dad was dating? I think so. The, like, music shop owner. Yeah. She was cool on that show. I mean, she was one of the only rational characters. Well, according, according to Wikipedia, she got added to the main cast in season two. A season we will never see. <laughs> nope. I will say I was thoroughly delighted to read about the finale. <laughs> I need to read about it. So... Back to Sylvie's love, they separate, he goes to France, and then we jump five years into the future. Right, it's 1962, a lot of changes going on. 
Mona, as we said, is in Georgia working for the Congress on Racial Equality. Sylvie has a job or is getting a job in television as a PA. Yeah, she starts on the phone board. And I love this because so someone calls about a job interview and Sylvie is like, oh, let me connect you. But then writes down where it is and then goes in for the interview. Look, these people know how to hustle for a job. Yes. I appreciate it. Yeah. So she's working there. She's married to Lacey, right. who married her despite being pregnant. Which she very much takes as, like, a sign of his, like, chivalrousness. Right. His nobility. And it is also clear that he knows not just that, like, she got pregnant, obviously, with another dude, but that, like, this was a guy who meant a lot to her and that she was, like, really into. Yeah. Lacey is a really interesting character. Yeah. Because... For the most part, he is, like, a good guy who's trying to do right by everybody, but he still has that, like, classical mid-century sexism where he's like, you can work as long as you're still able to do your jobs around the home. Yeah, as long as you are still a good housewife, you can have a job outside the house. But he's just so annoying about it. I know you're doing this job, but I need you to be home to cook dinner for these people I'm having over. This one dinner is more important, so you have to quit your job, essentially, is what he says. Yeah, which, like you said, makes him kind of a fascinating character, because he's, like, the good one of the bad ones. Right. He is the best version of a bad type. But still bad. But still bad, and I was glad that she went on her own. Yeah, get rid of Lacey. Um, So anyway, yeah, she's married, she has this daughter, and just living her life, and... One day she is supposed to go to a concert with Mona, but Mona does not show up. And walking down the street outside the theater, she sees Robert. And she has a spare ticket. Robert has a spare evening. So they go see the show together. This is also the first scene, like them meeting outside the theater. And, you know, she's just waiting for the show to start. And then suddenly she's like, Robert, like, oh my gosh. And then it jumps back to 57 and then forward again. And it does feel really satisfying when it returns to this. And mm-hmm. also kind of exciting because when it starts there and then jumps back, my assumption at least is like, that's the last scene of the movie. That like, right. they have a romance and then they split apart. And then like, there's this chance meeting at the end of it. But it's not. That's like the middle of the movie. And they have a whole relationship going beyond that. When it jumped five years into the future and we were only like halfway through the movie, I was very excited. Yeah, it's like... Not quite at, but, like, approaching the level of, like, Mark, you have not seen Drive My Car. Not yet. Drive My Car drops the opening credits 40 minutes into the movie. Oh, my God. It's thrilling. Ugh. Wow. Because it's half and half, I'd say. Yeah, just about. So you get to see their full lives in the future and then the rekindling of the romance instead of just, you know, you jump five years to the future, they run into each other again, and they're off on their merry way right instead they like they have this nice night they go to the concert he invites her to stay the night like I keep enjoying the night with him and she's like no i you know i've got my life i have to go back but then like basically as soon as he gets back to his hotel room she's knocking on the door and she says like oh it's rude to leave without a kiss yeah it's the reverse of the conversation where mm-hmm. he in 1957 had said like you know where i come from it's customary to get a kiss after a date. She says the same thing, basically. Like, I took you to a concert. That's a date. You're supposed to kiss me. And then they bang. And 
Yeah, they're basically back together. Her relationship with Lacey is falling apart as she is gaining confidence at the workplace. You know, when a gal asks a fella out on a date, there's usually a good night kiss involved. Her boss, who's the producer, is also a black woman. So that is, like, driving her pursuit of this role, too, because she has a role model. Yeah, I like that it's not just, like, choosing between men, and it's not just, like, Robert is the one that's, like, pushing her to think about her life differently. Like, this is clearly a thing that she has been working on and building up towards consistently, and would have done regardless of if he were there. And, like, I would say it's still, like, even odds that, like, she and Lacey don't stay together, even if Robert doesn't show up again. Yeah, I agree. I think that Sylvie is very much the driver rather than the passive, you know, she's not really swept off her feet. She kind no. of chooses to sweep herself into a better life. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. But after she and Lacey get divorced, this kind of brings us to point four. Yeah. And by the way, that breaking point in the marriage kind of comes after... Robert had invited her to one of his current concerts in New York, and she actually doesn't go, but uh, she's at work. She can't make it to the concert. Uh, she gets there when it's done. But when she gets home, Lacey is like, where were you? I tried calling your office. And then basically is like, I know he's in town playing music. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Oh, and they, wait, do they go oh, no. to the funeral? They break up, like, at the funeral. I forgot about this. Okay, so there's some, so yeah, um... <laughs> Her dad unexpectedly dies on New Year's Eve. And at the funeral, she's like in her office working. She's like, we got a show tomorrow. I got to keep working. He's trying to give it to her. No, your dad died. Take a couple days off. People will understand. No. People will live without a cooking show. He does say that, but he also is like, you have to stop working because we have guests. And yes. you have to come like entertain the guests. You have to be a hostess. And I think that's the point that drives her to end the relationship. And so then we're at point number four, because also what was happening on New Year's Eve, Sylvie's dad, like, on his deathbed in the hospital, called Robert at another New Year's Eve party and was like, the kid is yours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bold move on his part. Uh, well, I, I think he was correct in assuming that it might never happen otherwise. And, you know, it's not necessarily his place to decide that it should, but he clearly thought that it should. Yeah. So then after this, Robert goes to Sylvie and is like, hey, I know. And from that point, this is again where the movie is just like, all right, we've done it. Like, as soon as he said he knows, the next thing we see, the three of them are living together. Sylvie and Robert and the kid. Yeah. He's still playing music. She's advancing in her career. This is a case where it's sort of, we were talking about the troubled masculinity with Lacey. And there's a lot of that going on with Robert, too, because yeah. he's now in this family situation and he feels like, I am a man, I must provide for this family. And so he's trying to take his music career to the next level, but we're into the 60s, jazz isn't selling the way that it was, now it's Motown. And so he can't get himself business and he's really frustrated and he feels really emasculated by it. And Sylvie's kind of like, who cares? <laughs> it's 1962, we can survive on one income and I make good money. So uh, Robert <laughs> does not... Does not care for this. Right. He flies out to Detroit to try to get a record deal. Yeah. Ron Funches had come to town 
and talked up his role, like saying he's best friends with Barry and could easily get him a job if he comes out to Detroit. And then is frustrated when Robert does show up because he's like, no, no, like, I, I exaggerate. I'm full of nonsense. Everybody knows that. Yeah, he is like a gopher for the record label. Yeah. So Robert comes home from not getting this job and Sylvie's all excited. She's like, hey, I talked to my boss. He knows the person who runs the affiliate in Detroit. Like I could start working there and work my way up and like, we can do this. We can go to Detroit and make your music life happen. And he just announces like, I'm not a family man. I'm done here. He basically breaks up with her because she likes her job, I guess. I mean, that's not why he breaks up yeah. with her because he feels like he cannot provide and therefore he cannot live this life. He's being undone by the requirements he believes come with his masculinity. Yeah. So he goes back to Detroit just to run away like a little coward. And this is our point number five. Yeah. Do you remember that thing you told me about wanting me to be happy? Even if it meant you couldn't be a part of my life? What if I can't be happy unless you're a part of it? He gets a job in Detroit working at an auto factory. Sylvie continues crushing it at being a single mom in New York, it seems. I would watch this TV show. I would watch this TV show. But then Sylvie is invited to D.C. for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom by Mona, Queen Mona. So I guess that's it. So the time jump is like a year because that's 63. Yeah, it is. So it's been about a year. Wow, she really she really hustles at that She's TV the best studio. there is. And then in DC, she runs into the leader of the band that Robert had been in, his wife, played by Ava Longoria. <laughs> Carmen. And she just mentions like, oh, Robert is playing music again when he's not working at the auto plant. And she, like, has a beat of not realizing it because she assumed that he was, like, a set musician in Motown. Motown. She's like, yeah. oh, the plant. Is that what they're calling Motown now? But then she figures it out and is unhappy. Yeah, but then uh, this movie has the same ending as one that I'm imagining you have entirely forgotten you've seen, Mark. Um, tell me that Sylvie's Love does not have the same ending scene as Trouble with the Curve. God. Trouble with the Curve? <laughs> is that one of the ones we watched with Catherine? Yeah, it's the it's the Clint Eastwood baseball. Oh scout movie. my god! Oh, that movie was trash. I told I as soon as I thought of this watching it, I was like, Mark does not remember what that movie is. <laughs> yes, you are correct. That movie was bad, but that movie ends with Justin Timberlake showing up outside the Braves stadium to meet Amy Adams. Of course, it is much more satisfying in this movie because the romance is much better, and also it makes sense because. Justin Timberlake could have parked at any of the exits of the Braves Stadium, but there's clearly one place where the workers leave, and she's waiting there with her sweet ride at the entrance to the factory. And when Robert comes out, she's like, I'm here. Let's make this work. Yep. So they get back together. We get some nice scenes during the credits of the three of them, like, at the beach. Oh, really? Did you not see this? I was running short on time before my D&D session, so I turned it off the minute it hit written and directed by Eugene Ash. Yeah, there's like a scene of them at the beach. He inherits her dad's saxophone. What? Yeah. I got none of this. <laughs> yeah, just nice little moments. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's cool. I'm glad that's there. <laughs> yeah. So, Will, after watching all of this, except for the credits, do you find the romance believable? Uh, probably yes. 
Yeah, I think she's a little too forgiving of Robert at the end because he was bad and probably deserve like feel like there needed to be a bit more conversation for the reconciliation to work for me. Yeah, and I would believe that that conversation happened like before yeah. they moved into another home together. Like I have faith in Sylvie to have that conversation. Yeah. But, yeah. So, I mean, that's the main thing for me. And I think that might just be part of the jumping. I could go to a nine on this. I could give it a nine, too. Yeah. Yeah. This movie's great. Do you think that Sylvie or Robert is dateable? Sylvie, 1,000%. Sylvie's she so great. rocks. She loves TV. She knows herself. She's, she's also Tessa, Tessa Thompson, Thompson, so she's gorgeous. Yeah. I think Robert is trapped in the world of masculinity that the late 50s and early 60s imposed on him, which is kind of a deal breaker to me. Yeah. Uh, Look, would I take him over Jimmy from New York, New York in a heartbeat? Would I take him over Lacey? Also, yes. But luckily, those are not the only three dating options I have in the world. Right. But if you did have to pick one person from this movie to date, who would you choose? I mean, I think there are two clear answers. Well, no, there are a couple of good there are a couple good date options. But I got to go with Mona. I mean, Mona is the correct choice. Right. But uh, she's fun. She's fun. She's She's very supportive. Um she's a great friend and cousin and also works for like core and is involved in the March on Washington yeah, while Mona's at the same the time dancer. having fun. But I will say, this movie had a lot more good options than we've had in a while because there's <laughs> also the producer, her old boss, um, um, the producer is a good option that I didn't think of. Lucy, who is the chef on the TV show, is fun. Her dad's a pretty good dude. The dude from Bridgerton seems like a good date. Yeah, but Moda, ultimately, the number one. She is the correct answer. Will, many of the movies we've covered have been adapted to Broadway musicals. Should there be a Sylvie's Love musical? Again, I'm going to say there kind of is a movie musical of this already. It's called New York, New York. But... You know, should is a strong word. I think you could make a really lovely musical of this. I think, yeah. Because you do, like, the Act 1, 19... Right, yeah. The the time jump is your yeah. act break. And the first half is jazz-inspired. It's, like, Thelonious Monk music. Second act is Motown. The styles can change completely. There's a lot of good music in this movie. There's an arrangement of Fools Fall in Love during that dating montage that I really dug. Yeah. I think it could, I mean, obviously, yeah, should is a strong word, but I think this could be done very well. And I think, honestly, this could be a nice example of, like, frankly, one of the reasons so many movies get adapted into musicals is because the name then sells tickets, and that wouldn't happen with Sylvie's Love. But this would be a nice opportunity to take something in the vein of, like, the band's visit which was Mm. a movie that had very little profile, and say, you know what, there's a good story here. Let's try it in another medium. Yeah. Well, I have no talent to write it, so I can't even joke about getting involved in creating it. But Broadway... Get on it. Get on it. All right, well, I think that about does it for Sylvie's Love. I'm really glad we watched this. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Next week, we're doing a listener's suggestion where we're watching the original Stepford Wives movie with Fifi Fierce herself. Yes, the listener specifically requested that Fiona be a guest for it. Yeah, I'm really curious now. I am looking forward to it. I know very little, and I'm kind of deliberately keeping myself in the dark until I watch it. 
But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can also email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right. Last question, Will. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Sylvie's Love? Um, you know what? If you want to kiss, try asking. <laughs> I mean, that is good advice. Because on the one hand, it works a bunch in this movie. On the other hand, then you've got consent, which is good. And frankly, both times, it works out being super romantic. Wow. Um, my advice is shared interests can be a great place from which to build a relationship because it's their shared love of music that allows them to build into something even more. Going on that, I love the scene during that montage where they're watching TV together and she's clearly explaining TV to him. Like, I love that moment of her sharing her interest with him. I mean, that's kind of like a couple years ago if you were to be really into podcasts because tv had only been around for i guess podcasts been around forever but tv had only been around for a few years so it's not like it was as established as this she was probably explaining this is what tv is (laughs) all right well there you go until next time i'm a ginger and i'm gay so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye Bye.